common to note that the human body is composed of 60% water. Well, I believe that the human being is composed of 60% bathwater. Whoever we might consider, most of what makes up that person, their body of work, their interesting ideas, their skills and creations, their ethical triumphs, compose the precious baby in the bathwater. For most of us, let's be honest, the bathwater takes up the majority of our being. We are grumpy and ignorant and biased and selfish, driven by cravings and addictions and pettiness and self-pity and a lot of other stupid vices. So we eat too much and we drink too much and we make excuses. We self-justify our resentments and prejudices. We should try to nurture the baby inside of ourselves, the part of us that is forthright and wise, capable of making a positive impact, the part that wants what is best for us and for everyone else. As we grow up and learn and interact with other people, we can theoretically become more baby per unit bathwater. We gain competence and wisdom. We become more nuanced and morally sophisticated. If we're doing this right, we become better people. For all our faults, we are remarkably responsible. We get up in the morning even though we would prefer to lie in. We take our kids to school. We go to work even though most of us would rather not. We follow the rules, at least the important ones. But we have a dark side, too. We make mistakes, or succumb to temptation, or act like bullies. Rather than trying to divide humanity up between the good and the bad, as we often do, what if we tried to rescue the baby from the bathwater of each individual? Could we lift up what is good in each of us, even as we forgive the rest? To the best of our ability, we can try. Let he that is without water in his bath cast the first, I don't know, rubber ducky. Perhaps this analogy has outlasted its usefulness. One of my heroes is Daryl Davis, a blues musician who has cultivated personal relationships with members of the KKK. Through patient conversations and kindness, he wears away at their preconceived notions about black people, and this has worked to get many Klansmen to put down their robes. Can you imagine the courage and compassion of this man? Are there modern-day saints after all? I bring him up to show an extreme case of the baby in the bathwater. How much dirty water fills the bathtub of a man who actively hates other men for the pigment in their skin? Yet Daryl Davis has the heart to see, even in that clouded pool, the image of a baby to be rescued. Revenge is one story. We like a good revenge story, sure enough. But redemption, that is better still. Vitriol and hatred brings us down with the object of our condemnation. Redemption and forgiveness reflect the better angels of our nature. A hero saves the baby from drowning, a baby which might yet grow into a good man. My starting assumptions for this project, as I've shared many times before, are as follows. 1. The physical universe exists. There is an objective universe. Following upon this assumption, we obtain the physical laws of nature, the forces, matter, energy, space-time, and so on. We've characterized the laws of physics based upon the foundation that there is an objective universe to be described. Of course, the details could be dead wrong. The equations might change. A new force or particle or whatever could be discovered. The paradigm of space and time as four dimensions could even be overthrown. But physics is a fool's errand if there is no objective universe. Chances are you will agree that such a thing exists and accept this assumption. 2. I exist. I am a conscious being, a mind. My relationship to the physical universe is yet to be established for sure, but I am. That is certain, at least right here and now. I put this down as an assumption, more or less out of a courtesy to you. I need you to accept this assumption for me, as I cannot prove my existence to you by any known means. 3. 
you exist. This is to say that I assume other conscious beings, other minds to exist outside of me. Just as I am somehow related to the objective physical universe, so are these other minds. And if physics is any guide, those other conscious entities will stand in similar relationship to the universe that I do. That's three. I exist, you exist, and we both exist in relation to an objective universe, which exists. Number four. I am associated with a human brain. Whenever I exist, this particular brain is functioning. Moreover, I cease to exist when the function is appropriately altered. I return to existence when the brain's functioning obtains a certain state. So I am associated with a state of human brain functioning. So are you. Does this mean that brains are necessary for consciousness in the universe? No, but I accept that I require the brain. This conscious mind requires a specific brain in the correct functional state. The contents that appear to me, from sensations to feelings to thoughts, are driven by networks in the brain. The brain is an evolved organ system which is part of an evolved human organism. It is thus biological. It is alive. But Assumption 5 says that all biology and all chemistry reduce to physics. Whether consciousness ever occurs outside of biology, I don't know. But in any case, it must be a part of the physical picture. Alright, with those five assumptions in mind, we can drop back to physics to explore the universe and get our bearings. The universe is understood to have taken shape over 13 billion years ago with the Big Bang. Just prior to that event, all the energy that currently exists was present within an extremely small point. I can't speak to that understanding beyond what I've read and heard from physicists on the topic. Neil deGrasse Tyson describes the early universe in his book Astrophysics for People in a Hurry. He describes a beginning which is extremely hot and extremely dense, and how a process of expansion and cooling begets the appearance of subatomic particles, and then atoms as we know them. I don't know about you, but I get a bit overwhelmed with the discussion of bosons and leptons and quarks. But I can at least get a handle on atoms and the subatomic particles of which they're made. Moreover, the move I will attempt to make here in the discussion of conscious contents does not rely upon a deep understanding of such things. Here's Tyson. Quote, by now, one second of time has passed. The universe has grown to a few light years across, about the distance from the sun to its closest neighboring stars. At a billion degrees, it's still plenty hot, and still able to cook electrons, which along with their positron counterparts continue to pop in and out of existence. But in the ever-expanding, ever-cooling universe, their days, seconds really, are numbered. What was true for quarks and true for hadrons had become true for electrons, Eventually, only one electron in a billion survives. The rest annihilate with positrons, their antimatter sidekicks, in a sea of photons. Right about now, one electron for every proton has been frozen into existence. As the cosmos continues to cool, dropping below 100 million degrees, protons fuse with other protons as well as with neutrons, forming atomic nuclei and hatching a universe in which 90% of these nuclei are hydrogen, and 10% are helium, along with trace amounts of deuterium, tritium, and lithium." Unquote. Now it seems to me that there is a lot of useful information in that brief snapshot of the early seconds of the universe. First of all, I really like the description of protons and electrons as frozen into existence. All cashed out, the universe is composed of pure energy and nothing else. But as it expands and cools, matter precipitates out in the form of particles. Matter is nothing more than a configuration of energy. Notice that the vast majority of the atoms that appear are hydrogen, with a few atoms of helium, and a trace of lithium. This is not arbitrary. 
These are the first three elements on the periodic chart, the simplest three. Hydrogen is the smallest and simplest of all, followed by helium, then lithium. This is no coincidence. By means of the forces of nature, notably gravity and the production of stars, we now have a wide variety of elements in the universe. These are nothing more than larger configurations of the same stuff. It's kind of like the points and lines we use in geometry. You don't need new kinds of points or new lines to get the whole contingency of possible angles and shapes and so on. Imagine a geometric description of what we have learned from Neil deGrasse Tyson. The universe is a three-dimensional XYZ grid. The energy is equally spread out to fill the whole thing. But as the XYZ grid gets bigger, the energy is spread out further and further, which is the same thing as saying that the whole geometrical space is cooling. As it does so, points begin to appear in the grid. Each point has a definite value for X, Y, and Z. We will call these points hydrogen atoms. Sometimes points will appear close enough to each other to form a little line segment between them. These connected pairs of points we'll call helium. And once in a rare while, we will get three such points connected by line segments to give us an angle. We'll call such threesomes lithium. I know this analogy is imperfect, but I'm trying to make an obvious point. The basic building blocks are all that is required. Everything else is an elaboration. The building blocks are whatever makes points and lines appear on the grid. Beyond that, points and lines can be connected up to build worlds, literally. Everything which we know and love in the universe is emergent from the expansion of space-time and its energy. The potential for all this was locked up in that single pinpoint of energy at the beginning of time. So is anything possible from that starting point? No. There are a few basic rules which nature follows. They weren't planned by committee or given by God. They're perfectly natural. But they constrain things in important ways like the rules of geometry do. Only things which are possible under the rules will take place. It turns out that life is possible. And it turns out that consciousness is possible. Biology is just an elaboration of the rules of chemistry, which is just an elaboration of the rules of physics. Whether consciousness is a biological phenomenon, or a chemical phenomenon, or a physical phenomenon, while interesting in terms of analysis, still amounts to a physical phenomenon regardless. So consciousness is necessarily enabled by the natural features of our physical universe. Ultimately, it might be worthwhile to explore every phenomenon in the present universe in terms of fundamental physics. This would be the most reductionist approach. But what is lost in the process of reduction? It looks to me as if chemistry is emergent from the physics of matter and energy, and it looks to me as if biology is emergent from chemistry. By extension, it looks as if psychology is emergent from biology. If so, then mental phenomena occur at a very high level of emergent complexity. However, not everyone thinks so. Panpsychism has been gaining a lot of attention among consciousness theorists. It's too early to dismiss such a line of thinking. But I have some thoughts on the implications of this debate, that of whether consciousness occurs at a low level or a high level of emergence. Please notice that I am not, I'm really not talking about metaphysical emergence or emergence as the absence of reducibility. That kind of emergence is up for debate, but I'm not relying on it for my analysis here. I'm speaking of arrangements of matter and energy from which new properties arise in the sense in which oxygen atoms and hydrogen atoms can combine to make water molecules, which do a lot of things beyond the sum of what oxygen and hydrogen do. This is how complexity takes us higher up a hierarchy of levels to analyze. I'm not making any claim beyond that. So with that kind of weak emergence in mind, let's consider the implications of consciousness in the absence of emergent psychological phenomena. If consciousness is a fundamental feature of matter, 
or energy in the universe, say, then there must be something which it is like to be a configuration of matter and energy. The dispute, I suggest, is between the potential for consciousness in the universe and the ubiquity of consciousness in the universe. Since my intuition favors the potential side, I want to give the other side its fair due. Maybe I'm confused or overexposed to a neuroscientific framing of the consciousness problem. That could be, so how should I proceed? I've got an idea. How about I explore psychological phenomena in terms of the brain, behavior, and cognitive evolution? Once I cash out the specifics of human psychology, is there anything left over? Let's start with perception. Visual and auditory perception rely on large, well-mapped cortical networks. You're not going to see a visual scene without a large, orderly substrate, like the cerebral cortex. Moreover, the features that we can pick out from a scene, borders, faces, contours, color tones, and depth, each require substantial cortical processing which is localizable in the brain. This is how color vision, or motion, or facial recognition can be individually impaired while preserving visual experience. This suggests that all the features of sensory perception are complex, and therefore emergent. So a fundamental consciousness would be expected to lack any such perception. No hearing, no seeing, no bodily sensation. Perhaps some absolute sensation could be had, all pressure or all brightness. But if it were having nothing to compare against, how is that different from experiencing nothingness? What about emotions? Emotions have been associated by evolution with specific environmental conditions. So sadness attends situations for which it is appropriate. Likewise for anger and fear and hunger. These are motivational states, dependent upon biological values. Some preferred experience is being withheld or threatened, and we feel a certain way about it. Since both a preference and a current state coexist, there must be a level of complexity here too. There must be some relationship between a value and a current state to give rise to the frustration or anguish or fear. These are complex feelings. But maybe there are simpler emotional states. That can't be ruled out. There could be a kind of all-encompassing feeling, a tone. But with nothing else to be compared against, the presence of the tone or the absence of it is almost indistinguishable. No change will be tracked or noticed. Let's move on to thoughts. Thoughts have intentionality. They are about something. So the thing must be evaluated relative to other things. This implies complexity. How could something fundamental have a thought? That's a bit of a stretch. And now let's consider the real problems for fundamental consciousness, memory and attention. Obviously, you can be conscious without long-term memory. You can have severe amnesia. But short-term memory, which holds in mind a few items or concepts by sort of echoing them in the present, it's hard to imagine having a thought without such a capacity. And attention? That is the capacity to, in effect, willfully amplify one thing among many. These processes require a brain of some kind. They are far too complex and specialized to be fundamental. So what, after all, might be left over when we remove all the psychological aspects which feature in our experiences? No personality, no preferences, no motivation, no sense of body or self, no sense of time passing, no working memory, no perceptual field of any kind, no thoughts, no continuity, no change. But could it still be like something? A persistent, unaltered somethingness? If you were effectively vegetative except for a kind of white noise, everywhere and always, what would you experience? Would you experience the white noise? You wouldn't feel any way about it. You wouldn't think about it or attend to it. 
He would only exist at the cutting edge of the present moment, so there would be no sense of persistence. According to my framework, this amounts to the background against which conscious contents occur. But here there, then, there is no content, only a background. This is why I suggest that the phenomenon of consciousness is emergent rather than fundamental. But there is something here which still needs to be worked out. There's a bit of a paradox. If I allow that it might be like white noise to be an atom, say, then the atom is conscious by definition. But if background without continuity is not actually like anything, then the atom is not conscious. I suspect that pain and pleasure, the kind of contents which have a valence, are more complex than other contents. An intuitive analogy will help you see why. Pluck a note on a guitar. Is it sad or happy? Upbeat or down? It's not possible to answer that. It doesn't compute. Now pluck the same note in combination with other notes in the minor or major scale relative to it. Now it has a valence. Now it is either bright and uplifting or solemn and down-spirited. You see? The valence is a function of combination, even in a simple chord. Negative valence is something which occurs relative to a preference or expectation. It's like that with humor, too. Something is only funny given the right context. For example, when two opposing realities come into contact with one another to reveal a contradiction or an absurdity. This, again, is complex. So even if it were like something to be an atom, say, and I'm not claiming that it is, the atom would not have a sense of humor. It wouldn't have a sense of anything, as far as I'm concerned, even if it was like something, some background tone. I will call this kind of panpsychism, in which consciousness is ever-present but lacking any real content, weak panpsychism. I can at least imagine that this is how it is. So the problem of consciousness, given the presupposition of weak panpsychism, is a matter of complexifying a baseline weak phenomenon into a structure which has the strong phenomenon. The alternative case, the emergence as I've described it in this episode, is known as weak emergence. This is the manner in which galaxies are emergent properties of our universe. This is the manner in which the element mercury, or lead, is emergent. The potential for mercury and lead was baked into the fundamentals of the universe, but neither metal was any way present upon the Big Bang. Metals did not exist, but the potential was there all along. Accordingly, consciousness did not exist, but its potential must have been there. The potential for love and pain and anger and pleasure, these are like the potential for shininess and hardness and combustibility. So how shall we proceed to approach the dispute between panpsychism and emergence? I think we can take a big step forward toward reconciliation right here and now. I propose that the debate be argued between weak emergence and weak panpsychism. Weak emergence is the recognition that with complexity, new properties manifest. These can be combined and recombined to get even more complexity and further properties. Proteins are an excellent example. DNA provides the code from which proteins are assembled by the cell. The protein is a linear sequence of amino acids. There are many different amino acids to put together, each with its own features. Put the amino acids together one by one and you get the nascent protein, a macromolecule. The sequence is emergent relative to the individual amino acids. Now the protein will undergo folding and so on because of how the different amino acids it has interact. Some attract one another. Others form repeated sheets or various other shapes. Some sequences of amino acids will tend to anchor the protein to the cell membrane. You've probably seen those diagrams that show protein interactions as a kind of lock and key. One protein is configured in a way that it can interact with and change another protein. They can bind together to form a larger complex, for example. When we talk about ion channels or neurotransmitter receptors embedded in the cell membrane, we are talking about complex protein structures like these. 
They're machines made out of amino acid molecules. And just like in a machine shop, you can use nuts and bolts and metal sheets and gears and so forth to make a million different machines. This is weak emergence. Consciousness is a phenomenon of weak emergence as a new property of matter and energy configured in a certain way. Weak panpsychism is the recognition that a fundamental property of matter and energy is subjectivity. But there is essentially no content for that subjectivity until it is built up into a complex system. Weak panpsychism claims that consciousness is an early phenomenon in the universe, and weak emergence claims it's occurring later. The question becomes, are we the universe's conscious minds, awakened anew to behold the world? Or have we simply just become aware of ourselves, though we've been here all along? Mm -hmm.